Who Rules the World? A new podcast by European Union youth delegates Lucia and Nadia on SoundCloud and other platforms. I am Lucia. And I'm Nadia. In Who Rules the World podcast, we will talk about the European Union and United Nations and all the burning world issues that our generation will have to face when our time comes to rule the world. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Who Rules the World podcast. In this episode, we will focus on the power of the ocean and how the ocean is fundamental for life on Earth. And with us today, we have Gerard, Tui Anapu and Natalia Gasau, who are some of the two uh, PGA fellows, and really excited to have you both with us today. So before we get started with all the interesting questions, I would just briefly ask each of you to quickly introduce yourself and, and say a bit about what is it actually to be a PGA fellow. But I'll start with you, Natalia. Hi, thank you for having us. It's, uh, it's exciting. It's an exciting topic and it's very uh at the moment, we need to discuss about that um, urgent issue. So my name is Natalie Gasaro, uh, originally from Rwanda. Um, we've been here for the fellowship program since uh, mid of January, and we're going to be here until August. So this is the second edition of the program. Uh, it's a program that is designed to empower and provide opportunity to the youth from least developed uh, country, landlocked developed developing countries and small island developing states, while also ensuring the geographical representation and uh, the gender balance. So on a rotational basis, we'll be attached to different teams of the, the in the office of the, the president of the General Assembly. So I'm currently working with the sustainable development team and uh, dealing specifically with water issue, disaster risk reduction and science. So thank you so much for, for coming. Narat, could you maybe also just briefly introduce yourself and say how you ended up in the president of the General Assembly's fellowship program? Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. And uh, my name is Gerard Tuyana, as you rightly introduced me earlier. Um, so the fellowship program was actually started a year ago by the Maldivian president, uh, the minister of Maldives that was the president at the time. And it was a vision and a sort of way to engage young people into diplomacy and the way that the UN works and getting them exposed to the things that we do here, policy making, decision making, and all the stuff that we do at the UN that impacts everyone around the world. So this year we are grateful and thankful that um, His Excellency Shaba Koroshi decided to carry on this program and invited us all to be here uh, this year. So the program works is that um, it goes throughout the time of the presidency. Uh, and when we're here, we're rotated on uh, six different teams. Uh, so right now with Natalie, I'm on the sustainable development team, but I deal more with other issues that are not um, related to science, but somewhat uh, related. So um, it, it's an absolute pleasure and I hope to learn some more from here and take it back to our country, our beautiful Samoa and um, uh, take it through and see how that can impact our policies and the way uh, we do things back home, hopefully. So now you already mentioned the beautiful country of Samoa, which is also very dear and near Nadia's heart. Um, so 
how did you realize you work both in the PGA's office, but also in personal capacity, uh, quite a lot on the topic of oceans and protecting the oceans. How did you realize that we as humans are not taking proper care of the ocean and that you kind of need to be the advocate for it as well? I mean, I come from a, uh, an island state. So that being said, it means that we're surrounded by ocean. Actually, I think 98%, uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, of our area is made up of oceans. So, you know, we have this small land area and then our EEZ is what covers and makes up uh, all of what uh, is called Samoa. So growing up, I grew up in a village uh, far away from the city of Apia. And, um, you know, we as kids go to the beach uh, every now and then. And growing up, I saw that, you know, the coastal line was uh, slowly deteriorating. Uh, what used to be the beach area is now just sea. Um, there's a lot of incursions into the land. So and that's what made me realize that, you know, there's something wrong. And um, hearing and listening to leaders talk about the issue of uh, global warming at the time, which is now referred to mostly by most people as climate change, um, sort of made me wonder and look into it a bit more and then realize that, you know, there's these things that are actually happening that we need to really look into and consider. Mm. Uh, so I think, you know, as an island boy growing up, uh, you realize it as you go through. Uh, coming here, probably in New York, you don't really realize sea level rising because, you know, it's a big country. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of land area, so it, it's, it's not really seen. But it can be seen when we have natural disasters mm. as what happened in New York um, a couple of years ago when uh, the UN headquarters was underwater because of uh, uh, intense flooding. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a real issue that we all need to consider and look into. Thank you so much and I think it's so great that there are you know voices like you who are actually part of these discussions because we need to have those people who are affected the most uh, about climate change to to be here and to raise their voices. Could you maybe elaborate a bit on, you know, how uh, your heritage of coming from the beautiful Samoa uh, affects your concrete work in, in maybe your everyday life uh, when it comes to, to working with, with oceans and sustainability? You know, I was, I was actually talking to uh, some people uh, recently on a briefing I did on uh, Samoa as a small island state and climate change. And I mentioned this to them that um, when we talk about these issues of climate change, oceans, water, it's not theoretical for us. It's uh, something that we talk to uh, talk about uh, from the heart because you know we see it happening. It's not theory that it might happen. It's not that uh, it could happen. It's because you know we're confident in what we say because we look around our own country, uh, our own island, and we see that it's it's happening. And when we have um, natural disasters like cyclones, flooding, or even drought, uh, it, it's, it's something that we experience uh, with our lives. So that's why when we talk and when I do the work that we do, we sort of uh, play a role as advocates as well for these issues because we know it's important to us. It's an existential mm -hmm. um, threat to us and for our survival because uh, if our island goes underwater, then there's the question of our people. Where would mm -hmm. we go? What does that mean for our statehood if we migrate to another country? Uh, 
So there's all those issues that you look into far ahead. Um, and that's why when we talk about these issues and the way I work as well is that I try and, and um, incorporate it into the things I do, but not so much as be pushy to other people because you know, these issues affect everyone and will continue to affect everyone. So in this episode, we're also tackling um, or touching upon the science-based um, action, but also it's very important, especially in the island communities, uh, to also address how the indigenous communities are working on protecting their water and oceans. Um, and in that regard, I would maybe ask you, what are some of the, like, some of the things that the rest of the world can learn from indigenous approaches uh, to saving and protecting our waters? For for a country like Samoa, we have um, villages. Uh, so each village within Samoa have their own council of chiefs. So these uh, chiefs uh, make up the the rules that guide the way people within that village uh, live uh, to an extent. Uh, so this sort of informs the way decision making is made in uh, overall government and parliament and the laws of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is why I think our country is, is a peaceful country as well, because we have uh, the rule of law nationally, and then we also have the villages that have their own rules to help with the uh, people and keep order mm -hmm. uh, to an extent. So what happens is when we have issues, so. Uh, the other issue that we face also now with um, our coastal area is that there's a lot of sand mining mm -hmm. and villages now are trying to keep that to just the local people of that village because what's happening is we have bigger companies, mm -hmm. um, industries coming in and mining using excavators mm -hmm. and that's already causing issues with regards to our corals, mm -hmm. uh, the coastal line and it being eroding. Um, and much more. So that's one way of controlling it is mm -hmm. through village-based rules that we uh, implement uh, to ensure that you know, we're not overusing the resources that we have. Same as with water, some villages are fortunate enough to have their own um, water supply. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they um, uh, come together and they look at ways of uh, making sure that everyone has access to that water supply and that um, it's sustainable for future years to come. So last year, the United Nations hosted a ocean conference in Lisbon, um, and a water conference is being held this March uh, here in New York City. So what can institutions like the United Nations actually do to protect the ocean? And also maybe elaborate also what's the difference between the ocean and the water conference? So I think the ocean conference and the water conference are quite different given the politics that are involved. There is a bit of uh, uh, some of the topics being uh, politicized. But um, again, the March water conference co-hosted by the Netherlands and Tajikistan, um, there will be the water action agenda as the outcome, which are voluntary commitment made uh, by member states, NGOs, private sector, and all of the commitment can be found on the Water Conference website. Um, so for what an institution um, like the UN can do, I think, um, again, those are my own personal view. So I think there are existing conventions, projects and programs, but at the end of the day, we need to have uh, 
action and willingness at all levels for an effective implementation, but also adequate resources, uh, including human and financial. So I think we need to continue working together for a peaceful and cooperative management of our resources. We've got many threats, threats sorry, that, um, that require regional and international cooperation to be addressed. So um, also, I think that the UN as an institution can set guidance, um, but it's also a platform where peer pressure with a positive mm. um, positive competitiveness aspect um, can come in, where member states can kind of like compare what others are doing, um, what's being done, and kind of push um, the member states to do more. So, yeah. Thank you so much. And maybe, uh, Gerard, if you have something to, to add on, you know, what the UN can do, can do uh, both at conferences, but also beyond. Um, thank you. I think these are two very important issues, despite the fact that they are distinct in their own na uh, natures. I think they are linked to an extent. And so personally, I, I feel like the institution itself, the UN, goes as far as the people that are involved within the institution. So I believe that, you know, it's, it's not so much what the institution can do, but what the people within the institution can do to sort of uh, help with the issue. But it shouldn't have to stop there because uh, what we're seeing now is that, you know, member states and governments are trying to uh, come up with adaptive mitigating um, uh, ways or plans to sort of, you know, uh, deal with the issue of water because there was a report recently that there's now a 40% excess on the use of water, so we're, we're demanding more than we're getting. Um, this means that not only the UN governments, but everyone, private sector, uh, NGOs, and even the individual need to come together and do something about these issues, much like we see with the ocean conference. Mm. So I, I think it's important that we're now also refocusing on ocean, I mean, on, on water, like we are with ocean, because yes, we rely on oceans for livelihood and other things that sustain us, but we also need water uh, to sustain our uh, lives as well in terms of drinking water, cleaning and everyday use, uh, things like that, mm. to name just a few. Thank you so much for the interesting answer. And back to you, Natalia. I know that you're working a lot on science, which is amazing when it comes to uh, topics like ocean and water, because we really need to have discussions about the environment, about uh, the ocean, which is science-based. Uh, can you maybe elaborate a bit on how we can ensure that the UN discussions are actually uh, based on science and reflects the urgency of taking action? Uh, that's an interesting topic because uh, before I came here and started doing my fellowship, I, it's science diplomacy is something that we know a bit, but we never really think of the combination of science and diplomacy together. So I think it's a, it's a, that was an, kind of an eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. um, so the PG has kind of made also science evidence as one of his pillars during this, uh, his presidency. So we had a scientific briefing already on the 7th of uh, February uh, where uh, it was to inform member states on uh, an important issue. And uh, as Gerald said, I think it's very good to, um, to, to engage all the stakeholders to have a holistic approach and uh, in finding sustainable solution for be it for the water, the, the ocean and all the other. Um, I think all the, the, the challenges that we face now are 
we have found that they're interlinked, but they also all kind of have a, a, a scientific dimension to it. So it's important to add this aspect to it. So we need to develop this culture of, of involving um, scientists and academics into our, our, our decision making. Um, but there is a few challenges that I think um, the number one will be how to convince both national and international um, decision makers um, to accept and transform the policies into the recommendation made uh, from the research. There is also the need to build trust between the diplomat and the scientists for a better co uh, cooperation. We've had a bit of, um, we've seen some of the narrative where there was a mistrust a bit growing into the scientists because of falsified evidence and so on. So that will be something that we want to build this trust between the, the, the diplomats and uh, scientists. But, um, and my last point, I think, will be that we need to ensure that there is a right ecosystem in place. Um, so I think by that, I mean that uh, we need to build uh, the, the, the capacity at individual, but also institutional level, um, making sure that um, I think there is also something that is lacking might be the, the um, the, the research and publication made by uh, uh, by scientists coming from developing country that's a bit lacking in the, in the in the world. So it's important that we have um, we form partnership to um, for everyone to be in, in, involved and heard. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Maybe just to to follow up uh, in general, we we have that there is not enough women in science, and that that is a problem. And I think it's quite inspiring how you know you are a strong uh, female leader. Uh, who is engaged in in science and sustainability? And I don't know if you would mind uh, just you know sharing a bit about you know how you personally got got engaged in in science and sustainability. If you're up for that, yeah. So I um, I was assigned um, to this team, so it wasn't a personal choice, but <laughs> I am actually happy about it because it has uh, um, it's topics that maybe as a we don't really think about it, but we do need them, especially as uh, landlocked countries and developing countries. We need the, I'm touching a bit on disaster reduction also, which is very important. Maybe Gerald can touch a bit on that after. So it's really, it's, 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 it's important. Yeah, and I heard that you worked a bit on disaster prevention a bit, and you also talked uh, about it before that, you know, you also experience nature uh, catastrophes in, in some ways in, in Samoa. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on, you know, how you work with that and, and how it's interesting for you? I mean, in Samoa, we're disaster prone because we're a low-lying uh, coastal state and we're just a small island developing state as well. So uh, disaster risk reduction is an important thing for us in terms of adapting to different um, uh, situations that we may encounter. Uh, mitigating them actually uh, would be better mm -hmm. to make sure that they don't happen again. But uh, the one issue around disaster risk reduction for a small country and developing country in that sense is the issue of financing. Mm -hmm. So as a SITS, we uh, also have the Samoa pathway, which is um, a tool for financing for small island developing mm -hmm. states. But even that is coming to an end. Uh, this year, and then we're going to look at what happens after the Samoa pathway. So it's important for us, but uh, in that sense, we can't do it alone. We have to rely on uh, our partner countries, our development partners to come and uh, assist us uh, in terms of this. But it also goes back to, to that level of 
community-based approach as well. What can the community do? Meanwhile, we're waiting on where we can get funding for bigger projects. Mm -hmm. So I think you know it's 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 an everyone kind of um, thing that we need to to work on. What is in your opinion, some of the most crucial actions that we need to take to ensure that the humans do live in harmony with their surroundings? Coming from Samoa, uh, one of the important aspects of our people, our culture is respect. And I think that if we can um, educate and instill in our people that we must respect everything that's around us, uh, that's one way to go about it. And the way by, of doing that is by uh, education and awareness programs to the communities so that they are aware of you know what impact does me doing this have on our environment and then how does that affect our everyday life and moving forward and you know that knock-on effect of what you're doing now and how that can impact you now and the future generations uh, of your country so if they have that if they have those awareness programs and they know what does does I mean what that does to them, then they would get that sense of respect mm. for the environment around them and live sustainably mm. instead of just living like you know there's mm. always more to come. And the world would most certainly be much better place and much nicer places. Everyone would live with respect to the nature and respect to environment, which is at the end of the day also our human rights now also institutionalized. Um, and yes. on that point, I would like to say a big thank you to Gerard and Natalie for taking the time uh, to discuss, to have a PGA Youth Delegate uh, dialogue with us. Um, and all the best to the beautiful Rwanda and beautiful Samoa. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you ladies for having me on your podcast. And I look forward to hearing more and many more to come. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This was Who Rules the World podcast by European Union Youth Delegates Lucia and Nadia. WRW coming soon with next episode on SoundCloud and other platforms.